This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Coleman, your host today. We'll be talking to Marie Mouchalek about her new book, Violence as Usual, Policing and the Colonial State in German Southwest Africa. Marie Mouchalek, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. Marie, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, so I'm a historian of German history, modern European history, especially military and police history. And I work at the University of Konstanz. I live in Freiburg um, and I also taught in Freiburg for a really long time. Um, I studied in Hamburg and then I moved on to Paris and did my MA there uh, on um, German soldiers during the occupation in France in World War II. And after that, I worked at the concentration camp memorial in uh, Neuengamme near Hamburg. Um, and I think this is where it really clicked for me that um, it's very important to um, listen to individual life stories. So people matter working with the survivors there and working with the families of uh, camp inmates really made me realize it's very important to have their life stories, to have individual experiences and life worlds. And this is where I got my, um, my, my take on history that is very anthropological, I think. Um, and so after that, I moved to the U.S. and I did my Ph.D. at Cornell University and out of that uh, evolved the book that we're going to talk about today. So that's me, and now I'm back in Germany. Great, thank you. Yeah, and this book is about something very different. So uh, Violence as Usual covers the period after the genocide uh, in um, German Southwest Africa and focuses on everyday violence. We will get into the definitions, but for now, I wonder if you could tell us what interested you about this period, this topic? How did you come to write this book? Um, yeah, <laughs> well, I already told a little bit about like my interest in, in, in the lives of individual people. I, I also got really um, fascinated, it's maybe not the right word, but really interested in lives that are different from mine. Yeah, so <laughs> men <laughs> in particular and uh, um, common soldiers and um trying to understand their their worldviews, their their values, and what brings them to killing other people, what brings them to doing violence. And so that was always in the background already when I did my studies in Hamburg and in Paris. Um, and then I would say it's 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 rather circumstance. I, I was on the out, uh, on the lookout for a, a PhD subject and I went to the archives here in Germany and a very nice archivist's pointed out that there is a huge um, collection of police records uh, on German Southwest Africa. And so I leaned into them and like from the sources, I really developed then the, the, the main research question, which is about the relationship between power and violence. Um, yeah, I think that's how it came about. 
Yeah. Interesting how circumstance sometimes leads us to these topics. And we'll talk about archives too, because that is obviously very special. Uh, but I wanted to start with kind of how you start. And you begin your book with the story of police assistant Hans, who received a beating by a superior, then beat a prisoner, was reprimanded for the manner of the beating, told to beat the prisoner again, which he did. And in the end, Hans dies by suicide. I wonder what made you choose this particular story to start with, and how does it introduce some important themes of your book? Yeah, um, I, I, I like, or yeah, I don't know if like is the right word, but um, my style of, of writing history is to, to, to switch between small anecdotes to like really give rich narratives of very, very precise, very small stories, events, and how they unfold, and then to try and like move away from that and give a, an interpretation and analysis of, of, of the, the framework, of the structures, of the underlying mechanics or whatever it is that I'm trying to get at and understand. This story in, particularly, in particular uh, struck me a lot when I, I found it in the archives, um, um, and I think it's only there because Hans, this, this police assistant, died at the end. Uh, otherwise, it would have been yet another episode of violence, of common or quotidian violence uh, that would not have gotten recorded in the archive. Um, but it was there because Hans committed suicide. And then the administrators uh, who had to deal with this were not... Um, they they didn't agree on the reason of the suicide and what had um, what had happened before. Some of the administrators um, thought that the suicide was a direct um, uh, result of the beating that he had gotten before, um, and uh, it is true that members of the police force were not supposed to be physically punished um, according to regulations, but these regulations, of course, were very fluid because there was something that was called the paternal right of chastisement that every white person in, this, in the settler colony had. And so, um, yes, the, 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 the administrators were just debating over was it the right, quote-unquote, form of violence that had been um, administered or not, and added on to that, I thought that this episode was really um, like basically encapsulated um, very well what I was trying to get at that violence is a complex issue, <laughs> that it is, um, it is um, executed along racial and social lines, that it has very different meanings depending on who is talking, who is um, either suffering from the violence or or perpetrating the violence, and so I thought it was a, a very um, condensed form to show what I wanted to get at um, in this book. Yeah, that's really what struck me because, of course, we often read about the excessive kind of violence and you exactly do not talk about the genocidal violence, the excessive violence. Um, so can you just tell us a little more how you distinguish the two kinds of violence or rather how you also kind of broaden um, that definition of violence to incorporate many shades of, of violence, really? Um, and maybe if it fits in there also uh, how you frame violence as something that can be productive or cooperative. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes. Okay. So um, I um, I got inspired, or I, I, I get a lot out of um, anthropological and sociological understandings of violence because they um, really try to get at um, the meanings. Also, I mean, they, all of them try to also understand the causes of violence. Like, right? Why do people? Um, um, use the, the the means of violence, but um, and that's where I started then thinking, okay, so if violence uh, is something that um, has many different meanings depending on who's who, who's using it, then we have to be more differentiated. And then I looked at the historiography, and the historiography when it used the term violence, usually it meant war. Uh, and it meant either war or massacres or mass mass violence. 
Yeah, and I, I think that is um, <laughs> there's a good reason why that's the case, right? Because those are um, historical phenomena that we really do want to understand. But um, it it created a sense that these are moments of exception, and everything that happens before or after is entirely free of violence. And I think that is untrue and um, <laughs> that um, there are moments of, of supposed peacetime. Um, I, I always put that in quotation mark, especially in the colonial context, uh, where there's still violence happening, but uh, it's harder to see what it is exactly. Um, and I think it also has to do with uh, our 21st century notion of what violence is, that violence is something that is um, inherently bad, right? There's always a judgment immediately um, uh, and that it needs to be excluded from any kind of good society. Um, and if we look at the world today, even like in Germany, here in Freiburg, um, there's violence, Um you just have to look really hard and you have to see how it is uh, integrated in people's lives, in their social interactions. Um, violence is bad nowadays. It wasn't at the time. And I think when I realized that, right, that we basically have to defamiliarize ourselves with the notion that um, People experience violence, and, and by experience violence, I mean both as suffering from it, but also um, like perpetrating it as something bad. That is just simply not true in the, in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. Um, and then it just becomes a fact of life. It becomes part of interactions. Um, um, I think people had a different notion of what bodily integri uh, integrity meant, like how how much it in, in involved suffering and pain, um, and 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 so that's where I started to think, okay, I have to really broaden the idea of what what um, violence is, what it does to people, to their experiences, to their bodies, and to social organization. And once I had <laughs> realized that, I I. I saw that all the approaches that try to, um, to see violence as the disruptive part of social organization, as something destructive, as something that uh, tears social organizations, interactions, etc., and especially aspirations to have a state apart, um, uh, once you've realized that that is not the only form of violence that exists, that's when I came to see um, violence can very well be a, a social practice that is part of the social organization. And I think I, I refer here um, a lot to, um, uh, not a lot, but I refer to Hannah Arendt's idea that violence can't be power because power can only come out of, um, of uh, people working in concert, acting in concert together and I realized that the, 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 the quotidian violent acts that I saw in the archive were a form of interaction and of people working together. It was a form of, um, of, of building community. It sounds really horrible, but it's, uh, that's, that's what I, I, I found. And, um, and so my argument goes that the violence that comes after a war in German Southwest Africa, after the genocide, so after a extremely um, destructive and uh, belligerent and, uh, and wartime form of violence, we have a society that uh, emerges that is not free of violence that is also not a, um, a, a graveyard. Some historians have called it a graveyard, so nothing happens anymore. No, people keep on living and they keep on having social interactions and violence remains a very important part of it, but the, the, the quality of that violence is one um, that has changed and is not just quote-unquote destructive, but rather productive, um, constructive of a new social order, which doesn't mean that the destructive part falls away. It's still there. Yeah, um, people still die after 
after the war. Um, but to, maybe to also frame it in, 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 in quite cynical terms, the, 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 the colonial regime um, produced new forms of violence that made that people survived, if just barely, in order to produce, uh, to, to be productive and to contribute to the colonial economy, basically. Right. Yeah, it definitely complicates the image of violence that we have. Um, and so you, you touched upon the archive multiple times now. So I want to get to the archive because you also said that the story of Hans is only there because he dies in the end. So it's the excessive violence that gets documented. Um, so how did you actually find your material? Did you read about between the lines? Um, was that your main task? What were the challenges? Can you just walk us a little through the process? Yeah, yeah. So um, when you do Alltagsgeschichte, so everyday history, that is like the first lesson you learn very quickly is like, if you want to get at the normal or what is considered normal and common and everyday um, stuff, <laughs> you will have a hard time to find it because you, people usually don't comment on when things go as normal, as usual. Um, so you will always have to try and work your way from the margins, from that that is a little bit more exceptional, that is um, uh, out of the ordinary to get to the ordinary. Um, Uh, and that's what I then try to find in the archive. The archive that I worked with is really very official. So it's basically a very colonial official archive. It's the, uh, it was the, were the papers of the police force themselves. And then when I went to Namibia in Vintuk, I also looked at um, administrational um, records. So a, a very colonial perspective on, on this time period um, but they produced so much. They were German after all. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't have not enough sources. I had actually too many um, because the, the German colonial state really wanted to, um, to professionalize and to bureaucratize as quickly as possible. And so they produced a lot of material. And what they did is they write a lot of report. They wrote a lot of reports on every level of, of the hierarchy. So I have reports written by policemen. I had um, then um, uh, correspondences and, and, and reports, etc., written by, by the higher ups, by the, the administrational, the magistrates and the district chiefs, and also all the way up to, to the government in, in Vintuk, the, the police headquarters in, in Vintuk, and um, uh, the colonial office in Berlin. All of these are very, uh, very bureaucratic sources But if you read enough of them, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's an image that starts um, uh, to come together, and particularly reports, um, because these reports um, were to 80% not about violence. They were about the daily deeds, what, what policemen had to do. Um, and after you read, I don't know, the 100th <laughs> report, you get the little moments where a policeman, even though he wasn't asked, will, will slip up and will, will tell from his perspective what, what happened. So that's where I got at least the image of like, what was the quotidian work of these policemen and how much of that was involved violence uh, or how much of that can we see the sources hint towards um, conflicts and interactions that involved some kind of physical um, conflict. And then I have source material that is um, exceptional, like, um, like the suicide, where, um, where policemen and their, their superiors were not so clear about how to handle those situations. So basically, in the moment where there's no agreement, right, is this punishment enough or too much or 
um, what is it exactly? Um, I, I, I use the concept of um, epistemic anxiety, right? The people were not really sure what happened or they just had to justify themselves. And that's where I had very small uh, glimpses at what I thought could have happened. Yeah, they, I think uh, there's a lot of... Um, not guessing, but I, I, I have to um, reconstruct a everyday situation f- from the from the little uh, that is in the record. So um, I, I use the word speculate sometimes, and I think it's legitimate to do that because um, if you have enough sources that repeat over and over the same kind of situation, I think it's legitimate to say that. Yeah, for sure. And you weave those reports into each of the chapters. And um, so we can follow that speculation and and see why. And it makes sense, I think. <laughs> um, so the, the chapters then discuss the actors, the institutions, the tools, the practices, and a specific field of work. That's how you uh, structure the book. And um, in chapter one, you discuss first the identity formation of both the German policemen and the African police assistants. So can we maybe start by talking about the similarities? Because those actually struck me because I would have focused on, on differences first. Um, so the similarities were really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so how do you write a history of a police force that is two-thirds white and one-third black, uh, where you have way too much uh, evidence about the, the white men and almost none <laughs> uh, about the African policemen? Um, that was a real challenge. And, uh, and I tried to really... Um, look at these um, policemen, both the African and the German ones, um, equally, even though the source material wasn't equally uh, distributed. Um, it, it comes out in this, in this first chapter the most, but I hope you, um, that the reader can see that I really try to follow all policemen all through every chapter. That was really important to me because there are other police uh, histories out there where usually the, the the black policemen get like one little part of the book and then the rest of the book is basically about the white ones because that's where we have all the source material. Um, so that was really a challenge, but it was very important to me. And I'm not an African Africanist, but I had to become an Africanist to understand what's going on there. Um, and um, yeah, I was also surprised. What I discovered is with, with the little evidence that I have, but I think you can really make a case, um, the policemen who joined the Landespolizei, that's its um, official title, um, the police force, uh, who are African and the ones who are German or white, um, both these groups, and there's also another group, which are the mixed race, the, the bastard, um, they all aspire to certain um, identity markers. And one very important one is honor or respectability. And this is the case for all men. (laughs) The second one is, uh, and and what constitutes this this notion of honor and respectability are um, question about social status. So, uh, having a, a, a good income, having a regular income, having a, uh, an affiliation to a powerful state um, who provides them then with the external markers of, of, of a uniform and of uh, a gun and, if possible, a horse. Um, and that was important both to, to the white man as well as to the black man. Um, they aspired her to as I discovered, two, two notions of um, masculinity, and they're also, again, an uncanny overlap of values, um, which constituted, in on the one hand, wanting to be adventurous, warrior-kind masculine men, so real men who, who go out in, and, and, and conquer. But at the same time, they, they all aspire to be um, and the institution um, 
wanted them to be more like fa- fatherly figures. So um, heads of, of, of a household, married, um, and be providers um, and, and um, not just um, dashing soldier-like men. So, and and, and it, it really, it goes through all of these different um, values and aspirations that you can find both um, among the, the, the black policemen as well as among the white policemen. With the African policemen, I had to do, um, I had to, uh, I had help from the from the secondary literature. There's there's a lot of really good African history that looks at other places or um, like that are around um, southern Africa, um, where you have these um, uh, these narratives of young men trying to become big men or important men, um, and they could do that by um, by um, associating themselves with the German colonial state. They also abandoned other, um, other values or other forms of uh, or social organization, like, for instance, um, generational or um, um, matrilineage um, 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 organizational principle were not that important anymore because the, the state provided them with a social position that they could not have gotten in a pre-colonial setting. Um, and for the German men, I think what was uh, what struck me was um, those are men of the old guard. They are basically still mourning a, 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 a an old regime um, in which their profession as, as soldiers, but also their profession, they come they often come from from um, uh, craftsmen and um, and and petty bourgeois uh, backgrounds. That they felt like they had lost that, and then again, the colonial state provided them with a like renewed notion of status, honor, of state, uh, of class honor. Um, and so, what I, I discovered, I do not want to um, deny um, differences and 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 the, uh, a, a huge power differential between the the German and the African policemen. But what I could see is that they came. They got closer on the social spectrum, and because they had very similar values, um, which you can basically really subsume under the notion of honor and respectability, um, they, they, their, their interests and their, um, their way of perceiving their work aligned. And I don't think that was an understanding. That was kind no cultural exchange. <laughs> um, but it worked. It was some kind of expedient misunderstanding that then ended up being an alignment. Um, and I, I have really, I have very, very specific um, instances where, a, a, for instance, a German uh, policeman projects his own understandings of honor onto his his black colleague, um, who by chance also had aspirations of respectability of honor, but that were probably quite different from his own. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a real surprise when I discovered that because I, 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 I did not expect that. But I think, and that's what I argue, is that that made this police force that was actually quite small um, quite um, efficient in, in its way of being able to pursue the project that they were pursuing, which was a policing the, the, the colonized and the settler community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And it seems that um, this was quite unusual also in 
in comparison to other colonies, and you refer to the British mostly, where um, white and black policemen usually uh, policed their own communities rather than policing together. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, so can you talk just a tiny bit how race as the main differential, of course, played into this identity formation and into these main topics of honor, status, masculinity, the cooperation within the police force? Um, yes. Um, so the, the, well, the colonial regime was deeply racist and so was the police. Yeah, and <laughs> wherever you look, you will find the racism. Um, white policemen were paid 10 times as much as the, the, the African policemen, the black policemen. Um, so there's that. Uh, that's very material. It's very, it's right there. Um, uh, I think around the notion of honor, um, which I had already tried to explain a little bit, um, the racism of German policemen was to think that they're, that the, the colonized population, the African population, had no notion of honor, that they, were, that they didn't know what that meant. Um, and yet, for their, their comrades, or I don't know what you want to call them, but the, the, the African men who were part of their force, of their police force, there they perceived them as, as having notions of, of honor. And that's where then the, 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 um, the question of violence comes in. Um, there, are, there were regulations that um, policemen, African policemen were not supposed to be beaten, were not supposed to, be, um, to get corporal punishment, whereas that was a form of, of uh, discipline in the rest of the colony. Um, um, and yet it happened, of course. Yeah, I have enough evidence that, um, that the African policemen were, I mean, like the opening scene, were brutally um, uh, beaten um, by their white superiors. Um, um, the notion of race comes in that, um, that the policemen also uh, thought and also police headquarters thought that the police force should have been in exclusively white, that real policemen was white work, and that these police, these African policemen were just, um, just quote-unquote, helping. That's why they're called polizidina. I, I translated it into assistance. Um, so they were supposed to assist um, the white uh, policemen who had a notion of what professional policing was supposed to be and... Um, and so the racism dictated that um, African policemen were um, didn't even know what policing is in a like modern Western uh, context concept, um, and were just merely there to assist by taking care of the horses, um, breeding um, um, traces, uh, um, yes, doing doing supportive work. In fact, what I discovered is that um, these policemen, the African policemen, were essential to the police work because they knew the language. They also had notion of, notions of, um, of law enforcement and of conflict resolution. So what they did was basically build their own police system um, while they were working at the same time for their white superiors. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it seemed that the white policemen also didn't really know that much about policing to start <laughs> with, right? <laughs> yes, that is true. I mean, that is the other thing. Uh, it, policing at the time is being professionalized and invented, both in, in, in Europe as well as in the colonies. Um, and so they were aspiring to be <laughs> good policemen, but basically they had, they had very little training in what that meant. Um, uh, they were not really proficient in law or in administration. What they had was their military socialization. That was the one big thing they had. All of the white policemen had to have served at least six years in the military and had 
to have um, the the um, the rank of an, a non commissioned officer, uh, and so had police headquarters basically relied on their their military training and their military um, bearing in order to let them then do civilian work, which is police work. Yeah, and that is what your second chapter is about, where you talk about soldier bureaucrats. And um, you write that, um, and I quote, in order for policemen's violence to be honorable, it had to be bureaucratically correct. So that sounds um, like some of the quotes you have before where it has to be detached and composed, the calm kind of violence. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this this kind of double identity of military and civilian and how it played into the, the right kind of violence that you describe? Um, yes. Yeah, so as I just said, um, resources were scarce, Training was short. So you basically have a police force of, of 600 to 700 men who are military men who just came out of a war, right, who really were used to killing um, and who were then uh, given the task to keep the peace, right, to do civilian work. And that out of a sudden included a lot of paperwork um, and regulations <laughs> and laws. Um, but nobody really taught them how to do that. Um, I, I looked, uh, they, they usually had four weeks of, of training, which again, like included a lot of shooting and writing exercises rather than, let's say, um, learning about the law and uh, learning how to write reports properly and um, so there's that. So the police headquarters relied on their, their military um, bearing because they thought if, if they were aspiring to be in, correct in a military kind of way, everything would follow and they would know intuitively what they had to do because the idea was if, if the person, if the policeman appeared somewhere, his his out his appearance and his his claim to state authority would make everybody around him um, obey basically and that <laughs> that put them in a really um, a complicated situation because the colonized population and especially not the settler uh, population uh, was willing to obey immediately <laughs> so um, what policemen came to realize is that they had to really um, rely on their own creative way of referring to law, of referring to the bureaucratic state in order to make their case. So um, they were men who were trained in, 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 in doing lethal violence, and then they were put in the position of um, being able to use that violence, but to having to uh, justify it with um, with the bureaucratic state, and that's when they start writing a lot of reports, explaining their actions, and especially uh, claiming authority and claiming um, to know more about um, the existing regulations and laws um, that made their actions then. Um, the right ones. And that is particularly true when it comes to violence. Um, um, policemen didn't always know the, the regulations and the laws very well, but they could always refer to it. Um, and that distinguished them from the settler community and particularly from the um, colonized community. And that is also true for the African policemen who um, had a a real awareness, a real consciousness about the power of the of the written word. So they they also referred in 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 in, in written or in in oral form to to the text. While in fact, what they were doing in practice on site was um, posturing, gesturing um, with the might of their appearance, of their of uh, being being in uniform and having being armed, basically. Um, and so the, these two things always come together. 
Um, and I think this is where you see a, um, a, an organizational culture emerging and um, a professional culture that um, moves away more and more from, from military culture, uh, organizational culture, because they just like they had to, they were also accountable more, more directly to the local administrators than they were to their military superiors. So it was really a hybrid institution, um, uh, which became more and more civilian, but never lost its its heavy reliance on lethal violence and all the outside markers. That's the other thing that I really discovered where I was um, struck is that most of the regulations regarding the police themselves are about appearance. They're not about how to do things, but about how to salute correctly, how to dress correctly, how to um, to appear, how to look like rather than um, what to do. Um, right. That was really interesting to see. Yeah. Um, in chapter three, you then move on to tools and technologies and focus on three tools in general. And those are the whip, the shackle, and the gun, and how they are connected to three types of practices, which are flogging, binding, and shooting. So I found it interesting to hear about what was and wasn't explicitly allowed in rules and regulations, and you already hinted at that. Um, so how the policeman justified the use and how this improvisation led to professionalized violence. And you've talked about this already a little bit, but would you walk us through that with those tools? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the chapter that was the most challenging, I think. I rewrote, I rewrote it several times. Um, it, it was my attempt to um, to use what I had learned from, from, especially from science and technology studies, like taking tools more seriously to understand um, how society works, how people work. Um, and uh, this is also the chapter where I go more deeply in different forms of violence. Um, so whereas earlier on, I tried to just um, make a point that not all violence is lethal and military violence, but there are all these quote-unquote, unspectacular, petty forms. Um, and, and, and then in this chapter, I really went into the, the hard work of looking very closely at what part of the hand is being used, what kind of tools are being used to, to harm people, to, to, to inflict pain. Uh, and the three really important ones were uh, the whip, the shackles, and the, um, and the gun. Um, the, the whip was the most surprising in the sense that I couldn't find it in the archive. There's no evidence in the archive of the whip as a tool, as a tool, as, as a state-sponsored tool. And yet everybody um, in, 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 in the other literature that I didn't... So if you're not in the official... Um, records, but rather in memoirs or in in in, um, in newspaper articles, the whip is everywhere. It's omnipresent. So to to deal with the fact that this seemed to be a tool that was so so common, so self evident that it didn't even need mentioning in the official records was something that I had a really hard time uh, to wrap my head around. Um, but at the same time, I also wanted to know how it was being used. So um, my, my, um, my assumption then was it was a privately owned tool. That's why it doesn't uh, appear in, in the official records. Um, and yet again, it's one of those moments where the the execution of violence was supposed to be intuitively known how to do it. Um, and that is simply not true. Nobody intuitively knows how to use a tool if you give somebody someone something in their hand, unless, and that was the other assumption I had, white policemen had been socialized in a culture of corporal punishment. Yeah, they were they were they were punished as children in school 
they were punished as soldiers in the army. And so they had already experienced this kind of um, flogging or whipping, uh, maybe not with the exact same tool, but this kind of punishment before. And out of that, maybe then um, grew the understanding that everybody knows how to use a whip. Um, the evidence for African policemen is less clear. Um, we know that um, uh, among Herero uh, in particular, um, corporal punishment is not a form of conflict resolution, um, but rather exiling um, or a, 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 um, a material um, redistribution uh, to, to, um, to right a wrong. Um, but the African policemen also were socialized um, very close to the German military um, uh, stations. So they must also, as children, already have um, experienced that kind of punishment. So it's really like it, it, it remains within a, a, a life world where apparently everybody knew uh, what this tool was about and how to use it. And yet, there's one instance in, in, at, in, uh, at the turn of the century where there's a really big debate about how to use the whip. Um, and this is where administ colonial administrators ask a whole range of people to give their opinion how to use it, not whether or not to use it, but really how. And that was um, then, for me, the moment to see okay, that has to do a lot with ideology. It has to do with a pseudo-medical, um, ethnographic um, discourse about um, the, the African population not knowing anything but um, violence and therefore th this idea that they were used to it and that their, even their skin and their bodies were much more attuned to it um, and then you have really um, quite horrible um, conversations about um, what kind of wounds the 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 right kind of punishment should um, should um, inflict. And there again, um, people were not in agreement um, whether it should be deep lashes or whether it should. Um, be a more generalized form of pain. What is clear that is, uh, for me now from the distance, is that this kind of tool did um, cause really horrible wounds and people were, the, the, there were long-time damages um, to the bodies of the people who, who received these wounds. So that was the third part of this um, of this um, chapter and it, it was hard working through it um, well, because of the subject matter, um, but I really wanted to get this close to um, to the issue because I think this is how people really talked about it, right? Um, it was not whether or not is a horrible kind of punishment, but rather what should it look like? What kind of forms should it take? Who were the ones who should wield the whip? The whip was supposed to be wielded by African policemen, not by white men except for in a private context. In a private context, a, 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 um, a farmer was supposed to wield the whip. A farmer, a woman farmer was supposed to wield the whip. Um, so that is the conversation they had, not whether or not to use this form of punishment, but what it should look like exactly. And that was really a conversation about race, about work, about how to make people work, um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, and all of that I could do by looking much closer at the, at this tool, which is the whip. The shackles were another, yet another issue. And there it is more about the fact that, um, uh, uh, that, uh, the, the police try to become professional and, and have the right tools. But I, I'm not going to go into that. Um, it, still, it was really interesting to see how they 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 um, they presented themselves as experts, 
and as the ones who know the latest technologies of binding, etc. When in fact the the reality looked much more brutal, where any kind of of, of rope or 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 or, or irons were used in order to to bound people. And the last one was then the the um, the guns and. With the guns, I could really show step-by-step uh, step my argument how um, policing as a social practice and um, policing as a so violent social practice produced certain laws, um, that they were using the guns in a way that was then later on, at the end of the German colonial period, inscribed into law, uh, and the one Example that I, I mentioned the most is the one that you were not allowed to shoot at fleeing subject, uh, which then at the end gets inscribed into the law because the policeman practiced it long enough and insisted long enough on certain narratives that it became a reality. Yeah. Yeah, that that point about improvisation and how it is then regulated after the fact uh, that kind of goes through your whole book was was very apparent in that in that chapter in particular I thought um, so at chapter four then you move to the actions and practices of policing to the Alltagsgeschichte or what the Certo calls the everyday practices and what I understand is that there were two main forms the desk work and the patrol pet patrolling um, the writing the being out there um, work. And um, they had so many different tasks. Uh, can you just briefly kind of tell us a little bit about those two main forms? Yeah. Um, so the police, I, I, I mentioned before that they were trying to professionalize, but this is a time where policing meant basically everything. It could mean um, putting up road signs, <laughs> uh, veterinarian inspections, um, postal services, uh, uh, looking at infrastructure, uh, making sure that children were going to school. Um, and, and not just in the colony, also in Berlin, police would come and look. I mean, all these, this differentiation of welfare and security work uh, was still in the making, right? Uh, the, and Basically, police were there for everything, which means they, they had to be quite proactive. It was expected from them to be proactive. Um, but it also meant they could do whatever they wanted, basically. <laughs> so nothing had to be their task, but everything could be. Yeah. Um, which I, I saw different behaviors of poli policing styles uh, of the men that I, I studied. Um, some of them were very laid back, but a lot of them were very, like, Meddlesome. They would meddle with people's affairs, whatever they could find. Um, so that was basically like the main mindset of a policeman. Uh, the context or the conditions were that they had to basically ride for hours and hours and hours in order to even meet somebody um, uh, most of the time, unless they were stationed in the somewhat bigger towns um, where they could like walk around and meet people. So police was, was basically just extremely boring. And I learned that from sociological studies. <laughs> Policeman work nowadays is also extremely boring. You just sit around and you wait, and then you have to write a report. Um, and there's a, a weird disconnect because what policemen consider actual police work is very active, is making arrests, uh, solving crime, um, and controlling people. But that is like a tiny little portion of, of their everyday work. Um, and it involved much more paperwork than it involved violence. Um, so if you had to like quantify it. Um, and... Uh, when you look at the everyday practices, I, I believe that that was quite frustrating. <laughs> and, um, and so what I've tried to show is um, that um, policemen try to find ways of making their work more interesting. And that is what um, Alf Lütke, so everyday um, historian, called Eigensinn, so a self-willed form 
of um, executing orders. Um, so they would weave sociability into their formal work and it all got mixed together into, um, into their everyday deeds. Um, and that also included a, a very itinerary form of, of being present in the colonial realm because they had to move so much around to even meet people. But once they were at a farm, they would, for instance, invest, investigate everything and, um, and while at the same time drinking a beer with the farmers. So that's what I was trying to get at in this chapter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, chapter five deserves a lot of time. We don't have <laughs> we that don't much have. time. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I did think that uh, we could address it quickly. Um, and, and I think the main point is uh, you're moving from police work to policing work. So the economic exploitation that is at the heart of colonialism and especially settler colonialism here. Um you called a semi-free labor. Um, so there wasn't officially forced labor, but of course there was uh, a type of that. Um, and then I was really struck by the kind of violence you describe in that as the educator for civilizing violence, which really brings it back to, to your main point about how complicated violence really is in this setting. So can you just say your main takeaways uh, from that chapter? Yes, which is basically the heart of the book. Um, all the others build up to this, this, what I think is the essence of the police work uh, of the Linus Pulichai, which is uh, trying to make the colonial economy work. Um, and the colonial economy is not profitable for many, <laughs> I mean, for the least people. Um, but still, they wanted it, especially in a situation, in a post-genocidal situation, where um, the colonial regime had killed most people, um, the idea was we need to keep the workers who are still there alive. And this is where I think the role of the police is crucial, is really key in understanding uh, the working of uh, the colonial state at the time, which was to to give a certain care, to care for both settler and colonized society. And the care, Fürsorge in German, meant um, um, educating both settlers and uh, the colonized population what forms of violence, and there it's mostly punishment, um, were necessary and the right kind in order to make uh, the men, the African men, women, children work um, uh, and be productive. Um, and that, but this care was really uh, directed both at the colonized as well as the settlers. So settlers who did, did not know how were, were supposed to be taught how. Um, and, uh, and laborers who refused or tried to uh, escape the labor economy were basically educated into working again. And this went together with also a, an, an idea of a, um, of a salary, of a, a capitalist um, economy. So the men and women were supposed to be um, educated violently to work, but they were also supposed to receive payment for that. That in itself, th that then was the ideology of the state, of the colonial state that the policemen represented and that did not always work well with what settlers thought uh, they wanted to get out of their laborers. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Marie, we have taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, we traditionally ask one last question, and that is, what are you working on right now? Um, I'm working on something different, but it stays in the in the violence studies. Um, I'm a um, I am a research assistant and lecturer at the University of Constance at the um, history of knowledge um, chair, and so I am looking into knowledge production. And what I'm doing is I, I've 
come up with a project which I've tentatively entitled um, uh, Killing to Keep or the Art of Killing Animals. And it's about um, violent field practices um, in, and natural history in the long 19th century in the broad context of imperialism. So I'm basically following German naturalists into the field and I'm trying to see how much of their work um, consists in killing and cutting and mounting animals into specimen. That sounds like a fascinating project, totally different yes. and yet connected. I look forward to reading that um, <laughs> some point soon. So thank you for talking to me today about your book, Violence as Usual. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Yes, thank you so much also for those really interesting questions. <laughs>